why don't you all bow with me and let's pray. Father God, as we make our way through the Gospel of John, I personally never tire at all of Jesus taking us into the waters of love and what the Father's love is all about, what his love is all about, and as we're going to see today, what our love can and should be about. Uh, Father, we live in a world today, as we're going to see, that, that talks about love, that might even pine away at the virtues of love, but, but rarely understands what real love is about, and, and, and even to define it and to describe it, and most importantly, to live it. And so I pray, God, that as we, uh, having now hopefully focused our mind and softened our hearts before you through worship, I pray we be prepared to wrestle with, to learn from the words of Jesus. So speak to us now, I pray, by the power of your spirit, through your son. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So here's something that just about every one of us here today have heard about, and that is, you ready for this? Fake news. Raise your hand if you have ever heard about fake news. Some of you go, you're not really going to talk about fake news. Oh, yes, I am. Uh, Trump uses the phrase to describe CNN. Hillary used the phrase in her speeches as early as late 2016. It's mentioned constantly on both sides of the aisle to the point that when I just asked you all to raise your hand, and I'm guessing at Cactus Venue and Chapel it's the same, just about every one of us are familiar with the phrase, fake news. Probably what is most fascinating is that this phrase did not originate with Hillary or with Trump or with CNN. It actually originated in a small town in Eastern Europe in mid-2016. The town is called Valais. It's in the country of Macedonia. And sometime in the middle of 2016, an editor from BuzzFeed, a news organization, began noticing a small cluster of websites originating from this small town that were putting out some outlandish news stories. They contain titles like this, Pope Francis Shocks World Endorses Trump for Presidents. Or, the FBI agent suspected in Hillary email leaks found dead in apparent murder-suicide. And this seasoned reporter from BuzzFeed knew that these things weren't true, and yet they were being portrayed as real news propagated all over Facebook. And upon further investigation, they they found that there were some tech-savvy young people in this town in Eastern Europe that had realized that they could make money via Facebook advertising and news stories, but only if those news stories went viral. And so they decided to spice the news stories up Even though they didn't have any interest in politics or anything like that, they knew that we did, so they spiced them up, and indeed they did go viral, and thus was born the fake news movement. And now it's become an almost household word used to describe news that seems real, but is actually not. Let that definition set in for a minute. News that seems real but upon further investigation, it's not. Now, though I do care about truth, and thus I do care about whether the news I get is fake or not, I want to talk to you today about something that is a 
corollary to this fake news movement, but I'm going to submit to you as much more serious, as a much more bigger problem going on in yours and mine lives and even in the world as a whole, and we're going to call it fake love. Fake love. We've all experienced it, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways, but here's how I know that all of us understand fake love. In just a second here, I want you to raise your hand if someone has ever told you or at least connoted to you that they love you only then to do something that pretty much shows that they don't. Raise your hand if that has ever happened to you. Come on, rest of you, we know it's true. You can raise your hand too. You're safe. It happens all the time. Our pastors deal with this all the time. People who who feel like somebody loved them and then they let them down significantly. You got to laugh at this a little bit. It happens to me almost weekly, not in a way that like scars me for life, but it's not uncommon for some of you to come up to me. And I appreciate you doing this. You'll come up and say, boy, you know, this church has really ministered to you. And, you know, I love what you teach from the pulpit. And, And then they say, we just want you to know, I love you, Jamie. We love you. And I go, well, thank you. I love you too. And I appreciate it. And give them a fist bump or a hug or whatever it is. And, and then we go on our way. And then it would not be unusual for a couple months later for me to go, I wonder where that person is. And I'll say to Neil, hey, you know, so-and-so, remember that one that loves me? Where, where did they go? And, and where are they? And, and Neil will say to me, well, do you remember a couple of weeks ago when you said this from the pulpit? And I go, yeah, they didn't like that. They left. And I think to myself, so much for love. And some of you go, oh, come on, just because they leave doesn't mean that they don't love you. Well, it's probably true. It just means they don't want to be around me. You see, this happens to you and I all the time. That's a small thing in the grand scheme of things. But some of you have experienced that in your marriage. Some of you have experienced that in deep friendships or with family members. And when it happens there, it makes us realize that this fake love, people saying it but not really knowing what it is or meaning it, is a real problem in this world of ours. And so what I want to talk to you about today is the opposite of fake love. I want to talk to you about real love. We're going to stay very positive today. And Jesus, as I prayed earlier, is going to help us. In fact, he's going to guide us today into what real love is and what it takes to give it, because by the way, that's where it starts. You've got to give it before you get it. To give it and then also to receive it. Uh, for those of you who might be newer to Scottsdale Bible, we've been making our way over the last couple of years through the Gospel of John. Uh, we're in the latter half of chapter 15 where we left off last May in the Gospel of John. And the context is, is that we're in the upper room with Jesus and his 11 disciples. And it's the last week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. And Jesus is sharing with his disciples, and by extension, you and me, because we're also his disciples, the truly important things about life, this side of heaven. These are like famous parting last words, words that matter. And so let's look at what Jesus says next. John 15, verses 12 through 17. Jesus is speaking. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask 
of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Now, there's an awful lot going on in these words of Jesus here. And believe it or not, in the next 30 minutes, we're going to cover most of it. But before we do that, let's get a bird's eye view of what Jesus is getting at here, kind of the main point of what Jesus is saying in these seven verses here, in which a lot's going on. And here is what it is. It's your main point this morning. And that is that Jesus is telling us here, I'm going to show you this, that real love at the end of the day is Jesus-like love. It's true that if you want to know what real love is as opposed to fake love, it's Jesus-like love. Now, I want you to notice with me two initial but very important things about Jesus' words here. First, and this is fascinating, even though Jesus talks much about himself in these seven verses, and we'll get to why that is in just a minute, interesting, the primary focus of his words are horizontal, person-to-person human love, in other words, our love for each other. How do we know that's true? I call this the bookends. Look at verse 12 and verse 17, the bookends of this paragraph. Jesus begins by saying, this is my commandment, that you love one another. And then he talks a lot. And then he ends up by saying, this is my command, that you love one another. So we always follow the laws of grammar. Whenever we read the Bible, that's how you can understand it rightly. And the laws of grammar would tell us that if somebody begins a sentence with this theme and then ends the sentence with this theme, there's a really good chance that everything that he says between it is supporting that theme. Give me a head now that y'all understand that. It's really important to understand this passage. Love one another, love one another. The whole thing is about how you and I can learn to love each other. Hang on to that. The second thing you'll want to notice then about this passage is that the how to love each other then is contained right in the beginning in verse 12 when Jesus says this. This is my commandment that you love one another. Here it is. Just as I have loved you. So the way that you and I attain real love as opposed to the fake love going on in the world around us, is by patterning, patterning our love for each other after Jesus' love for us. And this is why, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, that he talks a lot about himself in these verses. Because he's talking about how we can love each other, but then he talks about himself. Now you know why. Because he's going to tell us here all about his love for us in the hopes that you and I are going to get it and understand that that's what real love is about and then start doing it with each other. In a very real way, all of you grew up with this statement. Jesus is saying, if you want to attain real love, don't just do as I say, do as I do. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to tell you a bunch of things, but the real important thing is that you get out there and do it. So, Once we get this, that the entirety of Jesus' words here are about how to love each other and that this is accomplished by patterning our love after his, then the only question becomes, what are the things that we need to learn about Jesus' love for us that will translate 
into our love for each other? That should be the question you're interested in answering. And I'll warn you right now that the answer to this question, Jesus is going to give it to us right now, is both paradigm shifting and life altering. It's a game changer if there ever was one. Three things that Jesus shares with us about his love here. Three things that he tells us that can become integral to our love for each other. Three things that become markers of real love and translate from our walk with God into our walk with each other. And here's the first marker of real love, and that is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Look at how Jesus begins his description of his love for us in what has become a very well-known saying among Christians over the last, well, two, cent- or two, two, two millennia. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. A very common saying of Jesus. I love how it begins here. Greater love. Pause right there. This is really cool. Greater love. In the Greek, it's the phrase megas agape. Most of you know that agape means love. The Greek word megas is where we get the English word mega from, right? Like megaton, mega church. You know, it just means big. It means bombastic. It means huge. In a very real way, Jesus is saying here then, if you want to have mega love for those around you, it's going to come through you understanding what sacrifice is and that's laying down your life for your friends. Now, this is obviously referring to Jesus and the cross that he is about to experience. It's a foreshadow of the cross. Every Bible expert agrees on this. Most of us see this passage this way. When we hear the passage that you need to lay down your life for his friends, you think about Jesus and the cross that would literally end his life and the cross that he would not just suffer physically on but spiritually for the sins of the world. The cross that would be the ultimate sacrifice of God's son for our sin. And again, Jesus is right. There's no greater love, mega love, than that kind of sacrifice. But let's remember... And this is why we spent some time a few minutes ago on this point. This entire passage, this entire seven verses are to be prototypical now of how we are to love each other. That's the context here. And so even though Jesus is talking about himself here, he's also saying this is now to become the pattern for how you need to show real love to those around you. John, who is penning these words here in the Gospel of John, wrote a letter as well. And in his letter, he picks up on this theme. Look at what he says. He says, we know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. Here it is. And we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. There it is. John's putting two and two together and says, it indeed means four. That word life here, or lives, used both in John 15 and then 1 John 3 here, is the Greek word suke, where we get the word soul from. It literally means the life energy behind a person. So it doesn't mean body. Like some people say, lay down my body for another. Well, that's actually a mistranslation of this, if that's what your Bible says. It means your entire life, your body, your soul, your spirit. All of who you are, the life energy in you needs to be on the sacrificial chopping block for those around you if you truly want to have real love for them. The name of the game, the first thing Jesus tells us is sacrifice. 
Not sentiment, not just thinking about it, not just wanting to do it, but actually doing something, watch this, that is self-giving, even self-denying, that demonstrates the words that you say are real. That's sacrifice, and that's the first marker Jesus gives us of real love. A couple of years ago, there was a powerful little study done of low-income kids in Atlanta, Georgia. These kids who are part of the Metro Atlanta Boys and Girls Club live in poverty, so much so that many of the families can't even afford a Christmas tree, let alone gifts for their kids at Christmas. And so bouncing off of this reality, an outside group decided to run an experiment, and the results of this might surprise you maybe even move you. I know it moves me. So look up here on the screen. This year for Christmas, what are you hoping to get? A computer. Big, giant, Barbie house. A trophy case. Xbox 360. Minecraft Legos. What do you think your mom or dad want for Christmas? My mom would probably want a ring. She's never really had a ring. Jewelry. She loves jewelry. A new TV. Like watches. So, we actually did buy an Xbox 360. What in the world? I wanted this! Okay, you, you really got this for me? A new laptop. Wow! It's a necklace! So we also bought a necklace because he said you also wanted to get a necklace for your mom or your auntie. The catch is that you can either get a gift for yourself huh? or you can pick a gift for your mom and dad. I need you to pick one. Now, now before you answer, oh, I bet that's hard. Is that a really hard question? Mm-hmm. What gift do you pick? I choose this. I gotta go with the ring. What gift do you pick? That one. That one. That dress. I'll choose this for my mom. I'll choose this one. It's a really tough question. I'll give him this. You already know? Tell me why. Because Legos don't matter. Lego, your family matters. Not Legos, not toys, your family. So it's either family or Legos, and I choose family. I get gifts every year from my family, and my mom don't get anything. If I get a laptop, my mom will get something. She helps me when I'm sick. She helps me with my homework. She gave me a house to live in. They look out for me and do stuff for me, so I need to get back to them. Now I, I have the opportunity to give them something. Because you actually picked the gift for your family, you're actually gonna go home with both. Tell me how you're feeling. I'm feeling really happy and Why? thankful. Just happy, thankful. For your family, for what? My family, everything. You did make his decision, actually. And oh he picked the Pandora Charms. Oh, that is you're 
guys. I'll come to There's a, a prophecy tucked away in the Old Testament, a very general one that says, then someday a child shall lead them. And it's obviously referring to Jesus, but I think it's fulfilled in multiple ways. It's beautiful when you see kids pick up on something that Jesus teaches that adults don't do very well, but the kids, the kids get it. Some of you might be thinking right now, well, you know, and they just probably cherry picked the top five or six kids of that study, you know, and the rest of the kids, you know, chose the gift for themselves. It's actually not true. This study involved multiple kids and get this, 80% of the kids chose the gift for their mom or dad. And that touch you? And just so we're clear, the other 20% that chose the gift for themselves still got to keep both gifts. So they were very nice to all the kids in this. It's fascinating. When this first came out a couple of years ago, I did some research on this because when I first saw it on YouTube, there was a few thumbs down to this, like a lot of them. And I thought, what problem would somebody have with this? And so I started to do some internet research on this. And the vast majority of people that saw this were very positive about it. Washington Post, even the Huffington Post ran a positive piece on it. Uh, but there were some that had some problems with this study. Salon did a whole piece on it in which they basically said it's kind of mean to take a low-income kid and put such a difficult choice in front of them. And I get that. I understand that, that they, you, know, you probably don't want to do this study all the time because it, it does put the kids in a very difficult position. But probably what concerned me most was uh, in this article, being critical of this study, uh, one of the editors said this. He said, the video being presented is somehow uplifting, a, a grand testament to the power of selflessness. He says, but preaching a gospel of self-sacrifice to those who already have next to nothing is cruel and perverse. And I totally disagree. Here's what you guys need to understand. When Jesus first spoke these words, saying that real love is about sacrifice, denying self, laying your life down for somebody else, guess who he was speaking to? Anybody know? Poor people. Disciples like fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. People that, that were from the lower end of the society and strata. No offense, he wasn't speaking to Scottsdale people. He was speaking, speaking to people who, who lived in poverty, like a lot of people did in the first century, and, and he's telling them and their families, if you want to experience real love, even with what little you have, learn to prioritize others in a sacrificial way. And here's the beauty of it. They'll know you love them. They'll receive that love and know deep down that because you made sacrifice, you truly care for them. The first marker of what real love looks like, and these kids show us this, patterned after Jesus' love for you and me is sacrifice. Actions that are self-giving, even self-denying, giving something up, either emotionally, spiritually, or physically, so that someone else might be prioritized. So what is it for you? Are you prepared to love like this? Are you going to stay mired in this selfish form of fake love that's gone viral in our world today?
Now, as always with Jesus, there's more, much more. So notice with me a second key marker that demonstrates real love. And this is going to surprise some of you. You're initially going to like it. And as we go into it, you're going to go, oh boy, this is tougher than I thought. And it's this, and that is friendship. Friendship as a marker of real love. Now, listen closely to me, because we need to be very careful with this one, that we understand what Jesus means by this idea of friendship. So let's review again what he says in verses 14 and 15. Jesus just got the end of verse 13 and said, I now call you friends. And he goes on to say, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves or servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all the things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Now, the reason I put friends there in, in bold is because this is the first time, this will blow you away, the first time in all the gospel of John, and we're three quarters of the way through it, that Jesus has called the disciples friends. 42 times he has called them disciples, followers. This is the first time that he says, you are my friends. He's only used the word one other time in light of a human being, and that was Lazarus, when he says, let's go visit our friend Lazarus, who was sick a few chapters earlier. First time here that he's called them friends. And he uses this word three times in verses 13, 14, and 15. This had to catch the ear of the disciples in that moment. And here's why. This word friend back 2,000 years ago, means pretty much what it means today. I've researched it. The word in a Greco-Roman world literally means a close relationship built upon affection and trust. Wouldn't that be how you define friendship today? Scotty's got a close friend. I say to Scotty, you know, why is that guy a close friend? Why would you call them a close friend? And he would say, well, you know, we have this affection for each other, born of affinity, likes and dislikes. We like to do things together, and there's this affection. And then over time, he has been faithful to me. I've been faithful to him. And so we are, we are, we are now have this trust between us. You all would define friendship as a close relationship built upon affinity that breeds affection, and then faithfulness that breeds trust. Give me a head now that y'all understand that. So it's blowing the disciples away here at this point, because they didn't see Jesus like this, that he's saying, you aren't just my followers. You're not just at my heels. You're right next to me as my brothers, and I call you friends. The Son of God calling the disciples friends. And then he goes on to expound upon this real quickly so we understand the passage rightly. In verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, that seems kind of harsh at first until you understand what Jesus really means by this. All Jesus is saying here, this is the affinity part of friendship. He's saying, you and I, now, because you understand the kingdom and who I am and what I'm about, we have these common purposes, these common goals. You understand the kingdom. Your heart is knit to the kingdom. And so you agree with me about the kingdom. And when I tell you to do something, there's a very good chance you're going to do it. See, that's what affinity is. My, my wife's in the service here. I have affinity with Kim after 30 years of marriage. And, and there's times where Kim and I are like two peas in a pod and we agree with each other. And if she says, hey, I think we need to do this, I don't say, what are you talking about, woman? No, I basically say to myself, well, you and I are very think alike. We have a real affinity between us. And, and if this is what she wants to do, I love her. We're going to do this. 
You see, that's what Jesus is getting at here, is that those that have real love with him have an affinity with him to the point that they do what he commands. And, and then he says, no longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. So Jesus is essentially saying, because you're my friends, I have, I have revealed myself to you. I've taken you into my confidence. Watch this. I have trusted you with kingdom truths, and I expect that you'll be faithful with those things. Why? You're my friend. He's simply expounding upon what friendship is here. Don't miss this. The word friend in the New Testament means close relationship built upon affection and trust. And contained in this is affinity and faithfulness. And Jesus is hammering home both of them here. And here's where things really heat up. Because his point then becomes clear. I hope you're feeling it. And that is that friendship defined this way by affinity and faithfulness is a very powerful expression of love. Jesus is saying that I choose to have affinity with my disciples. I choose to share and reveal myself to them and trust them so that faithfulness can be the name of the game. And in that is love. And what's fascinating is that Jesus took the initiative here. We're going to talk about that in about five or eight minutes. He's the one who chose them and reached out to them, which even tells us here that if you and I want to have this kind of love in our lives, we got to be the ones who initiate this. We got to be the ones who initiate affinity and even faithfulness with those around us if we dare ever say to them, I love you. I got to tell you, it doesn't happen to me very often, but this week, as I was studying in my home office, uh, John 15, in a really fresh way here, I got very, very convicted on this point. And I actually don't want to tell you why, but I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you why. Because this is very vulnerable for me to share with you what I'm about to share because I'm like right in the thick of it. It just hit me this week and, and I'm actually in the middle of a paradigm changing time in my life where something I believed, you ready for this, for 30 years, God shook this week and he's changing the way I now see it. And so here's what I'm talking about. You know, I, I have to deal, like many of you do, with, with all kinds of church people, you know, all week long. And, and, and it's not always easy. I think y'all know that. We have a diversity of people and, and we live in a consumer culture and, you know, not every temperament is my kind of temperament and all of that, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ and, and so it's the name of the game when it comes to church and even being a pastor. And one of the ways that I have defensively dealt with that over the years, and please take this in the right light, is that about 30 years ago when I went into this, I established that God is calling me to love everybody in the church but I don't have to what? Like everybody in the church. You've heard that before. And so many times I have a conversation with somebody and they're really rubbing me the wrong way and, and, and I walk away going, well, Lord, I love them. Don't like them at all. In fact, I'm not counting the seconds till I see that person again, even though they're in my church. And that's one of the ways that I've dealt with it over the years, uh, sad to say, is that I have to almost shield my own soul sometimes by saying I love everybody, and I really do. I, I, will, I, will, I will don a hill for you, I, I will meet with you, I will give you wise counsel, I will, I will visit you in the hospital. I mean, I, I, I don't ever shirk those things, but, but there's people that I just don't like, and so I, I kind of distance myself, and unless they call me, I'm not certainly reaching out to, to them. And I've always thought I was pretty justified in doing that until this week. 
Because Jesus comes along and says that, that true love, real love, if you want to discern it from just fake love and lip service, is not just sacrifice, it's friendship. It's learning to find affinity with somebody that God has brought into your life. And here's what I realized this week, is that if you and I share Jesus right there, we got a good step ahead on affinity, amen? I mean, you don't have to like the cars I like or have the same temperament I have or the same sports teams I have or even the same political views I have. If, if we share Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is that we have a built-in affinity with each other that can now breed faithfulness, but here's what convicted me this week, but only if I really pursue friendship, whether I like them or not. And you see, that goes against the whole grain of how our world thinks today, doesn't it? Our world basically says that friendship is built upon likes. And so you only are friends with those that you like. And Jesus is pushing back on this here. He's still not saying that I have to like everybody in the church. Do we all understand that? He's not saying I have to like everything about everybody in the church. What he is saying is, don't use that cop-out, that excuse. Well, hey, I love them, but I don't like them. And then distance yourself from them because that, at the end of the day, is not love. And so as a result of this, I've, I, I've determined afresh that I'm going to start to like Neil. Now, it's going to be hard for me to do that, <laughs> but I'm going to work at it. No, and in all seriousness, I, everybody knows I like Neil. But, but there are people that I need to work hard around. Josh McDowell told a story years ago. I'm surprised I didn't connect the two. When I was in college, I went to a, a, a conference for Josh McDowell, the, the apologist, and he told an amazing story of how he was with a person, you know, fundraising or apologetic or whatever, and, and the person really rubbed him the wrong way, and he couldn't wait to get out of the conversation, and he did. And, and about a day later, the Lord convicted him and said, you need to go back to that person. Now, this is where it gets kind of funny. Josh said, the Lord convicted him to go back to that person and ask him a bunch of questions about his life to try to find something that he just might like about that person. And I thought that was so weird. And Josh did that and said, sure enough, as I interacted with this person, I found some things that I, I could very much like about them. And, and, and I never understood why he did that. But now, after this week in John 15, I do. I'm guessing that there's people in your life, maybe you haven't used the distinction I've used, but there's people in your life that you've done this like-love thing with. There's people in your life that God wants you to show real love to, that, that, that you need to go beyond just tolerating them, putting up with them, maybe saying a nice thing to them, but, but we're really drawing close in a friendship way, marked by affinity and faithfulness, and make the choice to do that and see what God does with that. that that's real love. As I audited this week my own life and the people that I know love me, they truly love me that way. They put up with my idiosyncrasies. They put up with things about me that I'm not even proud of and that probably won't change till the grave. And in so doing, they show love to me. So we got sacrifice. We have friendship. And then let's wrap it up because we're going to the communion table today. And this is a great way to wrap it up. We have choice. We have choice. You're saying, what do you mean choice? Look at how Jesus wraps up this section before he says in verse 17, repeats the command to love each other. He says this, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in my, in the name of the father, he may give to you. So fascinating. Jesus twice says here that part of real love is him choosing them. I, I tell you, I, we don't have time to go into this today, but 
every time I read stuff like this in the Bible, I get weepy in my own spirit because it reminds me that though I feel crummy many days about my own flesh and the things that I'm battling and all that, that Jesus reminds me, hey, it's okay, I chose you. I chose you. There's so many passages, by the way, that back that one up. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Uh, Jesus says your, your salvation is, 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 is guaranteed an inheritance waiting for you. I mean, from front to back, the Bible reminds us that he chose us. Many of us feel like we chose him. Now, he says it's the other way around. I chose you. And that's what he's saying here. But don't miss this, because again, the whole point of this passage is that we need to pattern our love after each other. Could Jesus be saying here that on a day-in and day-out basis, we need to start choosing each other more regularly? Doesn't that move you, Richard? It does me. I, I, I mean, the people that love me, here's what I know about them. The real love that I have in my life is because they chose me. Me. With all my foibles, with all my faults, with all my difficulties, with all who Jamie Rasmussen is, flesh and spirit, they chose me and said, I choose to love you. And many of you have experienced that too, and there's something very profound about that. Imagine a Christian community in which people were doing that all the time. Because I got to tell you, there's no way to wiggle out of love being real when it's based on that. When it's based on the fact that no matter what you do, no matter who you are, I choose to love you. I choose to be sacrificial. I choose to be your friend. Hopefully today, you see there's a really big distinction here between fake love and real love. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, here's what real love is. It's based upon sacrifice. It's based upon friendship. It's based upon choice. I long for a church that overdoses on that. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these amazing words of Jesus and more importantly, the actions of Jesus in which he went to the cross in which he calls us his friend in which he chooses us to be a part of his kingdom. And God, there's a lot of mysteries contained in all of that that many of us wrestle with, but I I long, Lord, for times when we just stop wrestling with it and just accept it, that he loves us this way. And that now, Lord, he's even said, and I love each other that way. And when you do, that's real love, more than anything you'll ever find in the world. So help us to do that, God. Help us to be ones who initiate that, not just wait to receive it, but, but initiate that in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen.